Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 14th, 2022, and this is episode 3052 of the Survival Podcast. Mondays are usually just Jack shows. The, the audio is coming out a little bit later today because we did this in a live feed. Uh, I had Matt Hill from Start9 come back and talk more about digital sovereignty and the new, the brand new upgraded version of the Embassy server, which you can get put in your own house about the size of a deck of cards. You can plug it in and have it up and running in literal minutes, and you can take control of your digital sovereignty and your digital privacy. This interview went long, longer than I expected, but it was because it was a tremendous amount of excitement and feedback from the audience in the live feed, and it just kept getting better. You're going to hear, I want to just kind of preface, you're going to hear two things from Matt today. We're going to hear a lot of things, but two, then go into two categories, things that are and things that will be. The are things are things you can do with Embassy right now. The things that will be are a mixture of things that you'll be able to do soon and some that we're talking years in development. And I don't want that to get confused, so I don't want anybody buying a Start9 server and believing that we can set up a mesh-based Internet and completely get rid of ISPs tomorrow. That is a long-term giant dream way into the future, and there's a lot of things in between what we can do and what you know that world would be uh, that are on the development timeline. But there is so much that you can take control of in your digital life and your digital privacy. And we'll even talk about how to get the people in your life who are not willing to do the work that you are to be using these services as well. So at least, if nothing else, you can have complete control of your files, your photos, your data, your chat, all right? If we and your passwords. Because a lot of people say, well, I'm using, you know, I'm using a, a great uh, password manager. Yeah? And who controls it? And who can shut it off? We're going to talk about all of that and a lot more today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors today. Sponsor day number one today is ButcherBox. Guys, I love ButcherBox. Uh, I just got my, my confirmation that my box shipped today, and it made me smile. There were some add-ons that I took part in this, this, this time around. One was like some, uh, some salmon bites, another was like this thin smoked like Nova Lox style salmon. They, they, they added that in addition to things like, uh, pastured pork, pastured poultry, and grass-fed beef. I love ButcherBox. They've been a great sponsor. You should check them out. And remember, if you're an MSB member, there's a discount. That discount's $10 a box. If you get a box every month, that's $120 a year. A membership's $50, and it's on sale right now for $35. So that tells you what a great supporter ButcherBox is. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Easiest sponsorship I've ever accepted in my life. This is why. In 1993, when I got out of the Army... I went into a Barnes and Noble right after I came down here to Texas, and I looked on the on the on the magazine rack, and I found a copy of a thing called Backwoods Home Magazine. I picked it up, a few other books and magazines, bought a coffee, sat down in one of those big chairs that Barnes and Noble used to have when they were a big thing back then, and I read that magazine, and it was the only thing that day other than that coffee that I bought. A few months later, I'd gotten myself settled, I'd gotten a job, and I subscribed to Backwoods Home in early 1994. 1994. Think of how old that makes me. It is 2022, and I am still a subscriber to Backwoods Home. If you check them out at BackwoodsHome.com, you'll see why. And with that, let's drop on into the live feed and start our conversation with Matt from Start9. And we are live, folks, and I'm uh, happy to welcome back to the Survival Podcast, Matt Podcast. 
podcast, Matt Hill. Uh, we have a lot of people really excited about this interview, Matt, uh, and we're going to talk about Start Nine and digital sovereignty and stuff like that today. But a lot of people maybe didn't hear your first interview. So could you start out, just tell people a little about who you are and how you ended up, you know, founding and building Start Nine and, and, and what Start Nine's about, you know, in the elevator speech level? Yeah, great. Uh, and I'm happy to be back on the show. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Matt Hill. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Start9. Uh, we make uh, Embassy OS, which is an operating system to facilitate running a personal server. So Embassy OS, um, you know, allows a non-technical individual, and we can talk about that because it's relative. There's still some technical uh, acumen required, but far lower than has ever been required before. Uh, for an individual to run and operate a personal server. Uh, this is discovering, downloading, installing, configuring, and running any variety of self-hosted open source services that are currently supported by the platform. Uh, these range from private peer-to-peer self-hosted messaging, uh, password management, Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, Mastodon, so social media things, um, message sharing, you know, you name it. So, it's pretty powerful. Um, it's going to grow in power uh, as we move forward and more and more services are added to the system. But ultimately, our goal is to eliminate the need for trusted third parties in the human computer relationship. We aim to create what we call sovereign computing. That is computing as you know it today, cloud and all, but without the involvement, not just without the trust, but without the involvement of trusted third parties. You and your computer are able to interact with others and their computers on a decentralized distributed network. Um, this is not a blockchain project with its own coin, et cetera, et cetera. This is just basic computing and leveraging the fiber optic cables, TCP, IP, and Tor uh, in, in a very heavy way, such that we can do normal things like messaging and data storage and financial transactions without the involvement of trusted third parties. Yeah, and let's talk about kind of the problems with third parties. And I think a lot of times we refer to as trusted third parties, and we probably start out with the fact that they're, they're not trustworthy. Right. Um, but most people, for instance, when you talk about cloud computing, they think that's something that only big tech firms do for web services or whatever. But they're probably using cloud computing every day, right? They're, if they're using Gmail. That's that's cloud computing, Correct. right? If you're using, uh, I can't even remember what it's called because I don't use it, but the file storage thing for Google, right? Um, Drive or Dropbox or yeah, Dropbox, Drive, or Drive. yeah, Google Drive, like that. That is cloud computing, and people are thinking, well, I'm just storing my photos there or whatever. And if you're using, I mean, right now we're using a cloud computing service to stream, and we're going on to platforms like YouTube and Stitch that are cloud computing, and they serve a purpose, but you know, this is public information. I want this broadcast to the world. I don't really care. I still have a risk that they'll take my channel down someday. But when it comes to things like email or my messages to my wife or uh, storing files, what, can you talk about kind of what the problem is with allowing these other entities to have this much control and what control they actually have? Yeah, and, and it's a good clarification that you made there, too, about cloud computing, that this is not like some esoteric term that big tech uses. This is personal computing. Personal computing has become cloud computing. All right? Almost everything that you do on your cell phone or your laptop or your desktop is in the category of cloud computing. Okay, Any single time you send a text message 
or you share a file with a friend and family, or you access your own pictures from multiple devices, that is cloud computing. Cloud computing simply means that the device you are using, whether it's your phone, laptop, or desktop, or tablet, is a remote control. Is it effectively a remote control with a screen that is operating a computer, a server, somewhere else, somebody else's computer that you are borrowing time and space on, or paying for it, renting it, right? You're either paying with your data and your eyeballs or you're paying with your money, uh, but it is somebody else's computer. So that's how we think of cloud computing, and that's what it is. Um, so the problem with that is that in essence, while it may not feel like it every time you open your phone or computer, in essence, what you are doing is raising your hand like a child and asking permission to do whatever it is that you're about to do. You want to send a text message to your friend and family, you are essentially raising your hand and saying, hey, Google parent, can I send a text message to my wife? And they usually say yes, right? Because you're not on the, the bad list and because you've paid your dues with your eyeballs or your data or your money and they say okay, right? Now, there's a couple of problems that can come from this. Obviously, they can say no at any time they want and as we've seen in recent months and years, uh, for increasingly arbitrary reasons, right? Whatever the flavor of the day of who's not the good person is, they can just say, you are no longer able to do what you have set out to do, regardless of the fact that you have paid, right? So, so it's, it's our, it's our house and it's our rules. Um, number two is that it is pay to play. You are paying. There is no such thing as a free lunch. So either you are the product or you are paying money for the right uh, for the privilege of using these software services. So you're talking about censorship. Uh, you're talking about extortion. Um, you're talking about surveillance. Um, and, you know, a lot of people already understand this to some degree, but the problem is getting worse, right? It's getting much, much worse. As the players involved have shrunk in number and grown in power, and as we as individuals have become increasingly reliant upon these apps and software services for our daily lives, not just personal, but business as well. Um, it's creating a very dangerous, dangerous situation for humanity's future where you have a few people uh, effectively holding the gates to the necessities of your lives as we move more and more things online. So let's talk about having your own server and how the average person can use that next. And I have to admit that with my background, the fact that this little box sitting back here about the size of a deck of cards is a, is a server still throws me a little bit. That's cool. I, I grew up uh, in, in the tech field. I'm not as technical as people think because I was an infrastructure guy versus a software guy, right? But I grew up in, in tech starting out structured cabling, building data centers and things like that. So to me, a server is either this great big tower that sits in a closet somewhere or it's in racks and it's all vertical. Like I have a server that I run my show on. I run all my educational platform. I run everything on. It's very, frankly, it's very expensive to maintain that sits in a data center in Salt Lake city. And it, it's a probably about that big and black and it has a bunch of stuff slotted in it. And, and now we're talking about something that is a, a totally different, not so much in functionality, but framework. And it's, it's, it's very inexpensive when you look at it that way. So, how does the average person benefit from having their own server? And can you talk a little bit about what what it means to have a server? Because I get it now, but I still like every time I hear the word server, I see a data center. Yeah. Yeah. A data center, a cloud. Right. It's it's undergone a few kind of 
visual representations over the years. Um, now it's, a, like you said, a, a tiny device in your home that's the size of a deck of cards. Um, computing hardware has come a long way over the last few decades, um, as has the software. Uh, and the cloud is a sort of new phenomenon in human history. I mean, this is people are still trying to figure out what the cloud is and we're sitting here trying to kill it. So, you know, we have to do this kind of dual dual research program, uh, you know, educational program where we're, we're teaching people about the old. That's actually the new historically. But now the new new is happening even faster. So it's really hard to keep up. And here's what it boils down to. If you want to uh, do cloud computing, which is absolutely essential, has become essential, okay, because the idea that you're going to have a device, the same device, always and forever, that is always on and always capable of doing everything you want to do, as in your phone, is absurd. Like, you are going to change phones, you're going to use computers, you're going to use laptops and desktops, you're going to want to share things with friends and family. Essentially, you want to be networked to multiple computers. The only way to do this is to have a server. A server is just a computer that runs 24-7, 365, has constant internet connection, and can synchronize data and information across multiple devices. We call them clients, okay? So today, if you open up your phone and you send, you know, uh, you post a message on Twitter, and then you open up your computer, or we'll use Mastodon, right, since it's the self-hosted decentralized alternative. So you post some uh, post on Mastodon and from your phone, and then you open up your computer, you can see that post, right? And the way that that happened was that your phone created something that got saved here in the cloud in the server, mm-hmm. and then that synced to your computer. And so everyone is in sync, and that's all because of the server. This server is Apple. It is Microsoft. It is Google. It is Amazon. It is them. It is the people who are controlling the data and information of the world. And what we have done is taken that massive server farm, server rack that is owned and operated by the most powerful entities, corporations and governments in the world, and we've shrunk it down and made it accessible into a little box for an individual to do. Now, we didn't actually invent this, okay? The hardware that that composes an embassy, our product, is commodity off-the-shelf hardware. You do not have to buy it from us. You can go to the hardware store, pick it up, and run it at your home. We didn't invent tiny little servers. We did not invent Raspberry Pis, nor did we invent the things that you want to run on that server, like messaging and data and social media and Bitcoin and Lightning and financial. So we didn't invent any of that. What we invented was was what sits between hardware and apps, right? We call them services. And that is an operating system. What sits in the middle of hardware and software is an operating system. And it is absolutely necessary. Now, has there been an operating system for personal servers? Of course. We call it Linux, right? We call it Ubuntu. Like, that's how these companies do it, is they buy these big server racks, they install Linux on it, And then they use what's known as the command line where they're typing into a black terminal to find services, software services from the Internet and install them so that their company can run them without having to pay the fees of these other tech giants. So that is not accessible to an average person. An average person is not going to get a server rack. They're not going to get a Raspberry Pi and install Linux and start using, you know, apt get to install things from the Internet. It's just way beyond the technical skill level or, quite frankly, the time bandwidth, energy bandwidth, patience bandwidth of any human being. I don't even want to use the word average because even the technical people don't want to do this crap because it just takes forever and it's super frustrating and it requires a lot of diligence. 
So what we have done is created an operating system that is based on Linux, right? It's not like we are competing with Linux. We leveraged Linux and built on top of it in order to create what we believe is the equivalent, right, of what Windows and Mac OS were for personal computers, okay? Prior to Windows in the 1960s and 70s, if you wanted to run a personal computer, you were super geeky and techy, okay? It was not like you could, an average person could do this. It wasn't because there wasn't hardware and it wasn't because there wasn't some calculators and word processors that you could run on that hardware. It's because there was nothing in the middle that made it accessible to an average, non-technical, normal human being. And that's what Microsoft did was they came in and they invented Windows, which now made it easy for a user to open up a computer Browse around, find some things to run, run them, use them with ease, point, click, graphical user interface. So all we did was take a page out of their book. What we did was we invented a graphical user interface for Linux of sorts, right, plus a whole lot more. This does this does a lot more than what a basic Linux does um, and allows a non-technical person to, in a very similar way, point, click, graphical, to discover Download, install, configure, and run open source self-hosted services so that, to get back to your overarching question at the very yeah. beginning here, so that when you want to send a message to your friends and family or when you want to share a photo, it's going same as before from your phone up to the cloud down to their device. It's synchronizing, except in this case, this cloud, this middle piece is a tiny little black box that's sitting in your home that you and you alone control and all the traffic is End-to-end encrypted. Here, it's encrypted, and then it's onion-routed using what is most commonly known as the dark net. We refer to it as the private net, onion-routed around the world to here. Then it's encrypted and onion-routed around the world to here so that it can be decrypted by anyone who with the proper authorization and credentials. So this is truly, truly private computing that does not get rid of the cloud, that does not sacrifice connectivity and all the luxuries that we've come to expect, but does eliminate those middlemen, those people who have positioned themselves right in the middle of your digital life. So, like, this definitely bypasses a lot of stuff. This little box, you plug it in, you follow, you install an app, you follow some instructions, and boom, it's installed and it's working. And then you want to install something that you guys have ready for it, like, let's say, Sphinx Chat. Boom, in it goes, you've got it. Yep. Um, and But it, that still requires some individual effort and some individualized knowledge. It's a little bit above, hey, here's my texting app on my iPhone. I don't mind doing that, but if I'm trying to pull my family and my friends into it, can I then make it almost as seamless or as seamless for them as using these other apps? Does everybody using it have to have that extra knowledge or can it be as simple as, hey, install this app and then I approve them or something? Like, How does that work so that my my wife, who will never sit through a podcast interview like this, will never touch any any piece of electronics in my office because she's afraid to. Yep. But I want her to be able to use it on her phone. Yep. You're talking about what we call Uncle Jim. Yes. Right? You, Uncle, you, how, well, how can I make it work for Uncle Jim? Yeah, um, you definitely can. Maybe not for every last thing that the device has to offer, but many things are Uncle Jimable. Okay. Uh, look, we are in our progression here. We're inventing a new product category, okay? Personal servers have never been a consumer product. Uh, they've been an enterprise product. They've been the product. They've been a, a tool for the rich, the powerful, and the technical. They have never been a tool for the average individual. 
So we are inventing new brain space and a new product here. And it ain't easy. What we're doing is very, very difficult. And as such, we're young. We've only been around for two years and it's not there yet, right? It works. We have non-technical, totally non-technical people using this, but that doesn't mean they had to put in zero effort, right? It took what? 25, 30 years, probably 30 years for email to go from pretty much unusable by anyone on the planet to grandma can swipe her finger without thinking twice. That took 30 to 40 years to do. Yeah. We're two years into this. So we, you know, we appreciate our early adopters and their willingness to put up with some of our infancy uh, and growing pains here. But um, it is leaps and bounds beyond anything that has ever existed. Okay. Comparing what it would take to, to set up a, a fresh, you know, device, install Linux, install all these services, get them hosted on the local area network, get them hosted on Tor, make sure they're running smoothly, configure them. I mean, you're talking about weeks of work from technical, very technical people. We've taken that down to a day of work from a non-technical person who's really willing to set that day aside. That's a huge, huge improvement. We've lowered the barrier to entry dramatically, and we're going to continue to lower it, but it's going to take time. So let's say the person who's never going to do it, not even the day of work. We're talking about grandma swipe, okay? She's never going to do it any other way. You can help that person significantly if you're one of the ones who will sit down for a couple of days and really figure it out because they don't even need their own box, okay? You can set up your embassy, install something like, let's say, File Browser. File Browser is the equivalent of Dropbox, of Google Drive, of OneDrive. It's literally just a cloud file storage system that you can upload and download files, media files, text files, whatever you want, and access them from multiple devices, download them onto different devices, and you can give multiple users access to this, right? So in your settings, you can enable uh, additional accounts. You then give out your URL, your personal private website, uh, where this service is running on the darknet to okay. your wife. So she opens up her computer, goes to this website, clicks create account, creates a username and a password, just like she would for Dropbox, and logs in. So now she's logging in to your website hosted on your server. You're the new Dropbox in this model, right? You are a tiny little Dropbox for the people in your life. And they're trusting you because now you have the power of Dropbox over those people. You can cut them off. You could delete their files, right? You can't necessarily view everything. It depends on the settings that you create because things, okay. you know, some of these services do utilize encryption such that, you know, accounts on your server are not even visible to you, but okay. you can destroy them. As the server administrator, you always have the ability to nuke things. I could so unplug the box. You can I mean, censor, you can, go nuclear, you can right? stick a hammer to the box and there, yeah. go their, there goes their stuff. Well, assuming you haven't made backups. Yeah, because they, they could make backups as well. But still, um, so it is very possible for you to once you have it set up okay. to just give people URLs and say, hey, create an account. And instead of using Dropbox, you use me. It's free. You are trusting me to an extent not to censor you, not to destroy your stuff. Um, but there's no more Dropbox involved in your life. So with the storage, then mm -hmm. um where is that file stored? Is that a hard drive that I have attached to my embassy? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. my hopefully an SSD, not an HDD, right? We yeah using old school hard drives is not recommended. 
Yeah, and that's that's something I didn't know when I didn't order the hard drive from you guys. Oh, sure. You said any hard drive, and I had I have like an eight terabyte hard drive sitting here in a box I never opened, and I'm like, I'll use that. And then you're like, technically, it should work. Yeah, it's just going to be slower. They tend to fail. We don't recommend them primarily for Bitcoin and Lightning usage because those things. Yeah, that's what you said. Back channel. Heavy read write, and if they go down, you can actually lose funds on your Lightning node. Okay. If your hard drive fails and you are running a Lightning node, it is possible for you to lose funds. Okay. Hmm, that's a case for backup power. Yeah, yeah. We, we've thought a lot about it. We have people who run embassies wow. that utilize backup power. Yeah. Power packs. Yeah. And so it's it possible. depends on how much you're staking in your lightning node if you're oh, doing sure. it yeah. more for fun. But if you're if you're like a mega node, right, then you, you, you've you got some significant skin in the game, right? Correct. If you are an, an everyday spender and you have, you know, $100 worth of Bitcoin on your lightning node and the worst case scenario should your hard drive explode is that you lose $100, it's not the end of the world. But yeah. a lot of people are power users of lightning. They actually run lightning routing nodes in an attempt to make money to actually yeah. like participate yeah. in the Bitcoin lightning network and make money. Um, and for them, it's like, you know, you got to use an NVMe, you got to make, you know, very diligent about backups. It's a part-time job. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, okay. That makes a lot more sense to me now. What, what services are most important though to run on something like an embassy server in your opinion? Like where should people start? I think, I think actually like part of what made me have some complications with this, I jumped right into, I want to run a lightning node, right? Just cause it sounded yeah. cool. Like I actually think there's some, there's some things that start nine does that's probably more useful to the average individual, uh, to start with, to get a feel for it and actually to start using in practical life. Like the file storage is great. And I think one of the things you didn't say, but it should be inferred, but we'll say it to make sure, like the beauty of that is I have my files on my server, mm-hmm. right? Or actually on a hard drive attached to my server. Correct. And I'm in Timbuktu and I got an internet connection. I have access to my files. Yeah. Period. End of story. And it's encrypted access and I can access that file from anywhere in the world. And I know that the only place that that's visible is on my device on the other end of it, right? Like that's a huge thing. Are there other things? I think last time we talked about Sphinx Chat, that's something I'd actually like to get my family and close circuit of friends using. That's why I asked the Uncle Uncle Fred or whatever you call that question, Uncle Joe question. Jim. Yeah. Jim, Uncle Jim, right? Uncle Jim, whoever yeah. he is. So, all right, so I'll, let me comment on each of those in turn. So the file okay. browser one is absolutely correct, right? You can, uh, and what's cool about file browser, and I think this is important for people to understand, uh, and every service, by the way, is that when you are home, when you are physically near your embassy, connected to the same Wi-Fi network, the same local area network, um, you can connect to your file browser website uh, over the LAN. So you don't even need the internet on. So if you're home, you could literally unplug your modem. All you need is your router running. <laughs> sure. And you could upload and download massive files from your computer uh, to your embassy very fast, like faster than any internet connection because it's not going over the internet. It's right here on the LAN. So you can upload and download massive files very quickly while you're at home. Then when you on the, are, are on the go, you can access your embassy and all of its files and everything running on it, utilizing its Tor URL. So at home, you utilize its LAN URL. On the go, you utilize the Tor URL. The Tor, both are equally private and secure. The difference is that LAN is super fast, but you have yeah. to be home, but you have to be home. Yeah. And Tor is super slow, but it's available from anywhere in the world. So neither is perfect. We actually have a cool solution coming very soon that is going to make sort of a middle ground of both of those uh, such that you can be on the go and not sacrifice speed. And we can get into that in a little bit. 
So that's file browser. Um, then you mentioned Sphinx chat. So Sphinx is a highly experimental program. Okay. okay. Highly experimental. We actually do not recommend it for any kind of critical real world usage. It is a toy to play with right now. It's okay. super early stage. For those who don't know what Sphinx is, is it is what's called a layer three, uh, application or service for the Bitcoin network. So you have Bitcoin, which is the big, heavy, beefy, secure blockchain, you know, uh, distributed network at the base. Then you have Lightning, which is the, you know, super fast channel based, you know, instant settlement Bitcoin transactions. And then you have Sphinx chat on top of Lightning Network, which actually utilizes financial transactions to facilitate messaging. So you can think of this as like the memo line on a check. So if I were to write you a check for a penny and then in the memo line say, what's up, Jack? How you doing? Okay. And hand you that check. Then you would get the message. The funds didn't matter. The penny was insignificant. I sent you some nominal negligible amount of money just because it needed to be on a check. Then you write me a check back that goes, hey, I'm doing fine. How are you? And you hand me that check. That's okay. what Sphinx is. It's people writing each other digital checks that have memo lines containing messages. And you can do group chats where everyone throws their check into a pile and everyone can see it. And it's crazy. Okay. <laughs> like it's cool. It's awesome. But it like, I don't know if it has a future or not. Like okay. it's, a, it's a novel thing and it's a little buggy. Doesn't always work well. It's kind of technical to set up. I've used it. I don't use it regularly. I set okay. it up and played with it because I thought it was cool. There are currently much better, more practical, more stable messaging solutions uh, for running a, a self-hosted server. Um, for example, we offer Matrix. Uh, Matrix is arguably um, the the leading candidate on Earth right now for becoming the the, the staple way that uh, humans message one another without trusting third parties, right? So you take things like Telegram or WhatsApp or even Signal. These are totally trusted platforms, okay? They might tout encryption, but yeah. 100% every message you send is hitting their servers and then going to the person that you want to message, which means they know who you are. They know where you are. They might not know what you're saying, but they do know who you're talking to. They can cut you off. And God forbid they actually do have a backdoor to the encryption. Then it's actually just a giant net for anyone who's trying to say anything that they don't want someone else to hear. So not recommended. Matrix, on the other hand, is a completely end-to-end encrypted decentralized messaging protocol such that I can run matrix on my server and you could even use my server or you could run matrix on your own server okay. and you and I can chat and there are no trusted third parties involved. These are our servers talking to each other end to end encrypted onion routed on the Tor network. Again, there's a little bit of a trade off with speed here, but we're going to solve that right now. One of the biggest obstacles to using self-hosted decentralized services on your own server in a trustless manner is speed. You're giving up a little bit of the like snappiness that you're used to with the traditional internet. Yeah, but I'm also keeping my conversations private 100%, right? And that sounds like that's Uncle Fredible. Even if I have to take Uncle Fred's phone and set up the messaging on the phone for him and just say, from now on, use this. Yes. It it could be that simple for Uncle Fred or Joe or whoever, whatever. (laughs) You should change it every time just for I'm going to change You know what? From now on, it'll be a different uncle every time. It's going to be Uncle Xavier next, right? (laughs) 
Um, no, that's really cool because I think that's one of the things that, you know, unless you're, you know, your house is burning down or something, if it takes a little longer for a text message to go through, it takes a little longer for a text message to go through. Yeah. Uh, in order to have that privacy. And like, I, I'm interested in exactly how you're going to solve the latency issue then. Like, what is the, what is the plan for that? Or is that secret sauce that we don't want to talk about yet? No, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, probably not in extreme detail. No, I will, I will no give you the high level. Anyway. Nobody wants the detail. I'll give you the high level. First though, I did want to, I just realized I didn't fully answer your last question, which was just sort of like, you know, you jumped right in and went straight to lightning. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And we don't recommend that unless you already have like a pretty decent background and understanding of what Bitcoin is, how it works, what lightning is, how it works. And you are willing to like put in some effort, not because of our system. The effort yeah. is not actually on the embassy OS, getting them installed and running them side of things. It's using them after you've done that. Right. Because it's like, it's hard enough to get somebody to just download a, a, a lightning app and do funds even without running their own server. Then you add your own server to the mix and it's like, Oh, I, it's even more complicated. So it is a, you know, it's a phase two thing, right? If you just want to get started with self hosting, and just feel the power of kicking people out of your digital life and having that that feeling of sovereignty, you get started with something like Bitwarden, right? Bitwarden is awesome. Self-hosted password manager. My wife runs an embassy. It is the only service that she uses, <laughs> and okay. it's worth it. It is worth it just for that one service because what Bitwarden is is exactly what LastPass or OnePass is, right? It allows you to browse the Internet, and autofill usernames and passwords such that you can have huge, long passwords that are different for everything that you log into, which is necessary if you want to be safe on the Internet, without having to actually remember all of those passwords. The problem with things like LastPass and OnePass is that all of your passwords are sitting on their computer, on their server. So not only could they, in theory, maybe have a backdoor to the encryption, which I don't think they do, but they are absolutely could censor you or they could just be incompetent. They could just go down, right? Oh, LastPass server is down, so you can't log into any of your websites. Um, it feels good to take that control back under, under your own wing. Um, so Bitwarden is one of them. It's actually been renamed to Vault Warden in the new 030 um, paradigm. Uh, it's just a, it's a, different code base. It's a Rust code base of, of Bitwarden, and it's faster. It's more performant. So uh, you have Vault Warden. Uh, you have File Browser, which I mentioned before, which is just Dropbox, upload files, download files. Um, and then we also have Photo View. Photo View is a service that sits on top of File Browser that basically is Google Photos, right? So any photo or video or any media file that you upload to File Browser right? Not photo view to file browser. So you upload a, a file to your personal cloud storage. Photo view will automatically look for media files contained in your file browser and then categorize them. It does facial recognition. It allows you to create different albums and then you can share those albums with external people, friends, family, or the world at large. And so it photo view is basically a way of rapidly indexing media files that are stored in your file browser server so that they can be consumed more easily and by more people without, you know, giving them access to your file system. Um, so it's really cool. Um, 
you know, those are the couple right out of the gate that I would just say, install them and run them because they will feel exactly like the way you normally use the internet, except it's your internet. It's your private network. Well, and you can run Bitwarden without a start nine server, but I guess then somebody else is in control of things, right? Like that's Bitwarden. if you're using Brave, you can just install Bitwarden and start using it. Yep. But it's communicating with some server somewhere to store the data because it's not stored on your drive or your 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 device. Or even if like I guess maybe it is because like a long time ago I used to use RoboForm for everything, right? So it was on my device because if I'm not connected to the internet, I could still see it. It's cached. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But the syncing had to go through somebody else. So when I got on a new machine and I installed RoboForm and I wanted to sync, it wasn't my machine talking to my machine. It was talking to some, you know, RoboForm's server. Exactly. So so I guess Bitwarden does that, but yet I can run my own copy of it. It's it's kind of like Linux then, right? Like it could be a cloud service or I can run it myself. And that is how a lot of these open source software organizations have paid the bills in the past, right? They write software that is open source and self-hostable, but they know that nobody is going to do it, okay? Because nobody is going to, again, install Linux on a Raspberry Pi, download Vault Warden, configure it, install it, and host it on Tor. Nobody's going to do it. What are people going to do? They're going to install the Bitwarden browser extension and log into the Bitwarden mothership servers. That is how Bitwarden makes their money is that they wrote open source self-hostable software knowing that nobody would self-host it and then they charge for hosting and that's fine i'm not criticizing them at all that is literally how they pay the bills and then continue to make this wonderful software yeah unfortunately we are now coming in and making it super super easy for people to self-host their software right and this is a this is a win for them in a way because it's promotion of their software and now more people can use it but it's also potentially at scale, kind of taking away from their ability to make money on hosting fees. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because right now we're kind of everybody's friend. But if we get popular enough, we're actually going to be eating people's lunch. (laughs) Yeah, breaking the breaking the open source, you know, world, man. Um, No, we're going to we're going to give back. Right. We we also, you know, we're open source project. We are going to uh, you know, contribute to the open source ecosystem in a very meaningful way, including direct funding. If again, if we get That's big cool. enough, we're eating the lunch of open source projects. We'll just give them our lunch. You're going to push it back. That's cool. Yeah, of course That's we will. Cool. We want them to keep building the software. I just don't want people entrusting their data to them. Neither well, do they, by the way. The only reason they do the hosting thing is because they have to pay the bills. They would prefer that people self-hosted and they had a different form of revenue. Well, and I see massive opportunity here for small entrepreneurs eventually, too. So I I look at this and I go, this is doing for personal computing and self-hosting what WordPress did for blogging. So WordPress gives away their blogging platform. Anybody can install it anywhere that they want to. Um, WordPress makes money through consultation, through dev and design, commercial products, things like that. But there's also literally millions of people who have made some money somewhere along the way designing plugins for WordPress and either monetizing them directly or indirectly. I'm building a, 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 a website right now for an online course in uh, aquaculture, and I'm using a WordPress plugin that is literally the best thing I could find. I, I'm going to pay $160 a year for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, that, now, that company is actually huge. The, the University of Florida uses their platform. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, like when you when you look at it that way, like I see like long term, there's probably going to be ways that like, oh, start nine doesn't do that since it uses open source software. Somebody could actually dev a thing that does the thing you're looking to do or makes the other thing better or what have you. Yeah, exactly. And we have no no idea. Well, I shouldn't say that we don't know exactly how this is going to play out. OK, like we are a highly disruptive idea um, and we're doing it. We're not just an idea. We're, we're making rapid progress. If we succeed at scale, at serious scale, we are disrupting the largest companies in the world. Bitwarden is some tiny fish in a tiny pond. Yeah. They made some open source software and they charge for hosting fees for the few people who pay them to do so. If we succeed at scale, we're messing with Dropbox. We're messing with Google. We're like, you know, it, and and they and there isn't much they can do about it either because mm. they cannot compete with us in our own product category because they would be directly cannibalizing their existing business model. OK, like these companies <laughs> thrive on being the data middlemen. That's literally what Silicon Valley has been betting on for the last two decades. Yeah. Data middlemen. They want SaaS. Software as a service, subscription models, cloud computing, be the person who has everyone's data. Well, that's changing because that's a dangerous place to be there now, right? You, yeah. you want to be the person who has everyone's data? Good luck on the regulatory front. Good luck on all the requirements on security and blah. I mean, it's like, you don't, I don't want people's data. I don't want to be anywhere near people's data. I want to, right? I agree. And so, what we're talking about here is a whole new way about thinking about computing. This isn't just some competing product. This is a new computing paradigm. And personally, I and we at Start9 think that we need this. If humanity's future is based on a bunch of a couple digital overlords who have their the total access and control over the world's information, we are in deep shit. So we we need this, and we at Start9 are arguably the, the leading technology company pursuing it. It's an interesting thing because you're talking about basically to compete with you, it's the snake eating its own tail. Exactly. So they, they can't afford to compete with you. That That's just yeah. – Well, so then, they, can, they can compete with us by continuing yeah. their existing trajectory yes. of total custodianship cloud computing and beating yeah. us on marketing, branding, yeah. uh, convenience, right, because they are more convenient than us. But yep. – we believe, this is our stance, we believe that we can reach feature parity and convenience parity with them, that doing it yourself can be equally convenient and useful and easy with one exception. There is one thing that we will never be able to do that they can do, which is forgot password. In our wow. model, if you lose your keys, it's over. There's nobody to call. So if the price of sovereignty is memorizing a password or writing it down properly, I'm willing to pay it. There might be people in this world who aren't willing to pay it. Right now, it's a lot more expensive than that. And I don't mean money. I mean time, energy, experience. Like doing this today, even with Embassy OS, is significantly less convenient than entrusting it to all the big boys and using their fancy apps. It is significantly easier than it was even a year ago or two years ago before us. We've made it a lot easier, but we're not there yet. We will get there again with one exception. 
you must not lose your keys or all your data is gone. Okay. That's the, that's the, anybody in crypto should get that though. Like it's, it's literally the same thing. There's a public key and a private key. And if you lose the private key or the backup, it's gone. It's gone. So this is what the reeducation that needs to happen, right? We need to, and Bitcoin is helping tremendously. All right. Bitcoin for the first time, normal people are saying things like public key. I mean, it's just like Bitcoin has shattered the, the, the wall that was preventing public key cryptography, uh, from, from being mainstream, right? It's teaching people about key management and it's making it easier with things like mnemonics where you don't need to remember 256 ones and zeros or some, you know, encoded version of that, but that you can actually just remember 12 words. Yeah. You could write down 12 words. Sing them in a song. Do whatever you got to do. Don't lose yeah. those 12 words. I tell people, learn learn one word a week for 12 weeks. Easy. And, never and every day, it. you one day you learn the word, and the next day you try to forget it, and you do that counterbalance for a week. Yeah. I'm going to, like, if my first word was BB, because I have a thing of BBs for my grandson's BB gun in front of me, then today I just all day long think BB, BB. And then tomorrow I, I, I'm going to forget BB. I'm going to forget. You do that for 12 weeks. Unless you have traumatic brain injury or get Alzheimer's, you know, and then write it down somewhere, have it duplicated. You know, I also big on like you can encrypt encryption (laughs) so you can have a certain way that you maintain your private key or your your backup phrase, especially that you know how to decrypt. So even if somebody finds it, they don't know what to do with it. Like they can plug it in and nothing will happen. It must have just been some random words like you can have a specific change function. You can add or remove words or you, you get them. it. It uh, that comes with risk. Yeah. Each new layer you put on top of your own security is a layer that can go bad. Yeah, I agree. So I agree. Keep it simple and, you know, adhere to best practices as they are well defined throughout the Bitcoin ecosystem. It's not hard to find. There's plenty of resources. Um, don't try to get fancy unless if you're going to get fancy, be damn sure you know what you're doing. You're doing yeah. And you'll be OK. Right. It. Look, in our model, security is far less of a concern than it is in the current model of computing, all right? Because in our model, it's almost more like your physical life, okay, where you have personal property. You have items in your home, and Mm -hmm. you don't go about your life worrying about those items getting stolen. Like most people do not go to the day being like, is somebody going to break into my house and steal my thousand dollar, whatever my TSP shot glass, right? Like if they take it and if, but if they do, it's gone. Yeah. But here's why you don't worry about it. It's not because it's not takeable. It absolutely is. It's because why are you, why would they take your stuff? Like who is going house to house, breaking into things? Do robberies happen? Yes. Okay. But the point here is that in order for it to be worth it, like it's really risky to rob somebody's house. Okay. Like you are, you are a risky person. You're, you're risking. Jail Especially time. in it's Texas. Big, yeah. It's really risky. In yeah. Texas. You're risking your life every time you think about stealing somebody's personal physical property. Okay. And so it better be worth it. That person better have a mountain of gold sitting in their house or something like that for you to risk your life to go get it. Well, do they know that you have a mountain of gold? Did you go around telling all your neighbors and everyone at the supermarket that you have that? Well, if you did, you're stupid. But if you didn't, then why would they even know that your house is worth robbing? Okay. So the, the, the basic security principle here is that when everyone owns their own stuff, 
and you're a normal person who doesn't have a mountain of gold, or you do have a mountain of gold and you don't tell anybody, you're not a target. Nobody is going to hack you. Nobody is going to attack you because it's risky and it's difficult, right? The reason that hacks happen today, the reason why cybersecurity is this crazy thing, and it's going to get worse, by the way, it's going to be a real crazy thing. It's going to be a huge concern for this world is because you have a couple people sitting on mountains of gold, mountains of data. And to get at that data, all you have to do is socially engineer one person who has the right keys and access. If you are the guy at Twitter who is the security personnel executive who has access to the, you know, all the keys to the databases, I wouldn't be sleeping well at night if I were you because you are protecting a mountain of gold. And there are people who are going to come at you every which way. We're talking blackmail, bribery, extortion, force, you name it. Gun in your mouth. I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and there's other ways, too. Like, I I remember listening to a story on on basically preventing hacking years and years ago at a talk that I sat in on. And this this, uh, anti-hacking firm was trying to win this account. And they said, we can get into your systems. And the company was very, very proud of their systems. Mm -hmm. And they said, you can't get in. And a week later, they went and they said, well, here's this, here's this, here's this. And they didn't have complete access yet, but they had all types of access, kind of first layer access. And you could tell that if it kept going, eventually they were going to get in and get everything. Yep. And then they were like, well, how'd you do it? Well, what they did, they put some malware on some USB drives and threw them in the parking lot. And people <laughs> picked them up, walked in, stuck them in to see what was on them. They put like cat pictures and shit yeah. on them. So there was something there. While this background process ran and it started logging keystrokes and doing all different types of things. And not only did they get all this access. Now this is, this is 20 years ago. So there's more sophisticated systems, yep. but that's what this company was selling is more sophisticated. So, but they didn't even know at that point that they had a problem because they hadn't done anything yet. They had just, they just taken data. They hadn't like started screwing stuff up yet. They didn't run ransomware or something like that, right? There's, there's so many ways that things like that can happen. And like you said, social engineering, like you can use the same tactics the CIA uses to, to create assets on somebody, right? And you form a relationship, you you ask for a little thing, then you ask for a bigger thing, and then you get to know who their kids are and where their kids go to school. And, hey, you know, it'd be really bad if something happened to Tammy on the way home from school. I need you to do this thing. Yep. And most people don't think that way because we wouldn't do – you and I would never do that to anybody. Nor would anyone do it to us. That's kind of my because we don't have any. We don't have enough. We're not worth it, right? We're We're not not worth worth that effort. Correct. So, so look, people people always think about hacking, and this is Hollywood's fault, um, as like fighting a computer, right? As like some human like typing really fast and like kind of jousting with a computer on the other end. And like breaking in quirky glasses on and pink hair. Yeah, and they they just like break into the computer. Okay. Cryptography is fine. You can't break cryptography. There's nothing wrong with the computer systems. Every once in a while, there may be some exploit that can get taken advantage of. It's not to say that these systems are perfect, but they've been hardened over many decades now to resist direct digital attacks. Computers don't get hacked by and large. People do. People get hacked. Okay. People give up the access to their computer by clicking the wrong thing, by getting fished, by getting socially engineered, by getting blackmailed, by getting bribed, by getting threatened. This is how hacks happen. And once you realize this, you realize that Twitter 
can't protect your data any better than you can protect your data. Because while they have all the latest in cybersecurity and software systems, at the end of the day, it's just humans. If humans don't have access to these systems, we're in, we're also in deep shit. Like humans have to have access. So if humans have access, then you can have the human. And now you have access. Well, and, so and then you're model. back to like what you were kind of alluding to earlier. If I'm going to expend my resources trying to use social controls or turning somebody or throwing a hard drive, a, a thumb drive into a parking lot or something, do I want to spend my time and effort to break into Jack Spirico's computer okay. systems, Matt Hill's computer systems, or Facebook or Twitter or Apple or any merchant account provider or any credit agency? Like, where are you going to? So. What we're talking about, really, and we haven't used the word, but it's crazy we haven't, and this is the second interview and we're 40, 48 minutes in, decentralization. Yep. That's really what this is. It's security through decentralization because it's just as hard to break, if not harder, but yet you, you, you instead of breaking into the bank and, and leaving, you know, like in old days, there was gold in the vault with a couple of wheelbarrows full of gold bars. Yeah. You break into the vault. You risk everything that you risk going into the bank vault and more. Because the individual will shoot you if you break in their house, right? And if you're lucky, you get out with a gold nugget. So there's there's it. a bank vault of gold over there, and there's maybe a nugget here, or maybe all you're going to get is a tin cup. And you don't know. So where are you going to put your effort? Yeah. Hacks don't happen if you decentralize everything. Of course, if you're a high-profile individual and you're super wealthy and everyone knows it and you have a ton of Bitcoin, et cetera, yeah, you might be a target. You or know people what? just hate you. I mean, you should invest <laughs> in some added security. You should yeah. you should invest in some, uh, you know, bodyguards and and you know, obfuscate where you live and stuff like that. That's fine. But for well, the average ask, person, you don't have ahead. to worry about it. I wanted to ask you just kind of a different question. I, I recognize when I hear passion in somebody's voice for a thing. What led you? to be so passionate about sovereignty and digital independence. This is like, I interview entrepreneurs all the time, and you can tell when you have an entrepreneur, like, this is a thing. I thought it was marketable. I'm following the rules of business. And they're, they're good people, but, like, it's just a business for them. Like, this is clearly a different level for you. You make me think of, like, Kingsley and Aaron Edwards with what they're doing with Float. Like, you're doing this for a reason. There's a mission-orientated posture here. What What brought you to that? Thanks. Um, <laughs> it's a big question. So, I mean, there's obviously a, a personal aspect for me. This is, you know, I have some character traits and personality traits that have led me to where I am. Even from early childhood, I was a staunch, strong-willed, don't make me do things I don't want to do <laughs> kind of kid. Um, so I've always kind of had this independence and, and I've didn't until later in life realize that that was based in in politics and philosophy, right? That there was an actual whole school of thought around this idea that individuals uh, are by nature and should remain free and sovereign and have control over their own lives. And the more I learned about the world, the more I realized that that is not what we had. Um, and, you know, when I was called early 20s um, and discovered Ron Paul, that was my real kind of um, initiation into the concepts of libertarianism, uh, you know, individual rights. And, and that's crazy because I was, I was in my early 20s and I was a, you know, I was a well-educated kid. I went to an Ivy League university and I, I was like, that's not part of the curriculum. Uh, they don't they don't teach you a whole lot about, 
you know, the, the, the underlying philosophy and politics of, of individualism. Um, and the, most of us don't discover it until, till much later. So, you know, once I discovered Ron Paul, I became kind of fanatical. Uh, and, you know, during the, the 2012 campaign, I was like active and I went down, you know, to the, to his side convention to the RNC down in Florida. There was a hurricane going on. I sort of powered through that to get there. It was like, you know, very, very passionate about just this, this libertarianism, individualism, individual rights. Um, and when I saw what they did to him, how they discarded Ron Paul, I, I came to terms, the terrifying, uh, truth of the, the enormous power that is possessed by the, uh, incumbents that they, through their control over information, um, can really kind of dictate the course of history. They can, you know, tell you what to think and people will just think it. And if they don't want you to think something, they just sort of ignore it, uh, like they did with Ron Paul. And so I was very angry, um, very, very angry that the things that I thought were most beautiful, critical and important to the whole human experience, um, were being hand waved by a bunch of shitheads at the top who thought they sh had the right to rule the rest of us. And so my passion and love for the human individual mixed with my recognition and anger towards those who would have it otherwise, um, kind of combined into a desire to, to fight back. And it took me a long time to find out an angle because there weren't many, right? This is a, this is quite the beast, um, well-armored, huge, you know, it's a Goliath. And um, it wasn't until I discovered Bitcoin that I realized where the, the weak spot under the armor was, the underbelly of the beast. Um, it was, and it was their own making, by the way, right? This, this giant tower that they built for themselves. Um, centralization is their weakness. Um, and decentralization is the answer. Now, that's a very broad statement. That doesn't have any real practical meaning, uh, except when you start to zero in on particular verticals and you realize that um, you actually can find ways to to uh, contribute. And for me, as a as a software engineer, um, it was it wasn't too hard to find. I, I quickly was like, oh, it's it's in Bitcoin, and and then Bitcoin related technologies meaning anything that can be self-hosted, open source, decentralized. Um, and then I met my partners, um, Keegan and Aiden McClelland, who were far beyond me on the computer science and engineering side of things, right? I'm, I'm just a software application developer. I build apps and websites and stuff like that. They were much lower stack, much more educated, you know, computer science people, top of their game. And we teamed up to take on what we thought was kind of the biggest problem um, in the digital sphere and arguably potentially the biggest problem facing humanity's future, which is the centralization of information infrastructure. Um, yes, there is physical world considerations here, right? There are military and, you know, roads and like physical, physical things, but more and more, Everything runs on computers. More and more, the software is running the world. And so long as that software is under the, the, you know, unilateral control of a few people, we are in deep shit. So that's it. I, I love the individual. I hate the state. And I, 
found a, a, a trajectory that allowed me to do something I care about while tearing down something that I care very little about. Yeah. Awesome. That, that's, that, that would do it. And I, I was just, I said in the chat here with everybody that's watching this right now, it's amazing how many stories like this start. And somewhere at the beginning, the word Ron Paul comes up. Like the, the hero. guy has done more for this country than anybody that served in government in my lifetime and not for what he did in government, for what he's done outside of government. And I, I found it interesting that when he basically said that at the end of his, his final term, people didn't get it. People didn't understand it. He literally said, I accomplished nothing in Congress. And he didn't, he, I think he's just a guy that doesn't like to toot his own horn too much. He didn't say the other side. Like, but that meant that's where all the power was. All the power was in what it empowered people to do. And I've probably had a hundred people at least, uh, you know, over 3,000 episodes of this show, at least a hundred guests come on and say, when I ask that some version of that question, Ron Paul gets invoked within, you know, like the first couple of years of that journey. And I think that's just awesome, man. Um, let's talk a little bit about what people can do with Embassy. We talked about some of the apps and what's coming up now. You got, uh, 3.0. And are there new services? What what exactly did the upgrade? A lot of people out there in this audience bought Embassy last year, yep. and the upgrade took a little bit longer than expected. So they went ahead and took delivery, and then a box came. I haven't messed with mine yet, but a box came. It's got some stuff in it to upgrade your Embassy. What is that upgrade like, and what does it do for people? Uh, so the main upgrade that you'll see anyway, because we did a lot under the hood, but what the main difference uh, that you'll see is that the embassy now runs off of a uh, SSD, an external hard drive that is plugged into the device. Now, in the future, will we have it all in one, of course, but for now, you know, we did not want to abandon the commodity hardware approach because we think it's critical for decentralization, nor did we want to make existing customers boxes all of a sudden, like not up to date. So it was yeah. extensible, right? So what we did was we found a great middle ground and we said, all right, take your existing box. You can either buy the upgrade kit, we called it from us, or you can go to the hardware store and buy the stuff yourself. It doesn't matter. But either way, you are going to, instead of having all your data and everything run off of the little micro SD card that's plugged into the device, you now have an external SSD that sits underneath on top or next to the device where all the data is stored. Um, and this is a huge, important thing for a couple of reasons, right? One, because the micro SD that was plugged into the device only had 128 gigabytes of storage, which isn't going to do you much good if you're uploading video libraries or want to run a full archival Bitcoin node, right? Um, what we offered in the previous device was a pruned full Bitcoin node, still a full node, fully validating, totally sovereign. It just didn't store the entire blockchain, which actually meant that you couldn't do some cool things with Bitcoin, primarily on the layer two uh, side of things, right? It, it made certain wallets inaccessible, um, et cetera. So secondly, micro SD cards are going to fail after a while, okay? This is not trustworthy uh, storage devices. After five years, we ran some calculations. We we predicted that after five to 10, it's a wide variance, after five to 10 years of using your embassy on its micro SD card, it would begin to fail. And that's not okay. So we knew that we had a ticking clock. Now we did it in a year. We didn't take us five years to put out an upgrade that would 
be more reliable and secure and performant and have more storage space. So that was the huge kind of story of O3Os. We're moving off the micro SD and onto an external hard drive. We used this need to do everything else that we wanted to do. Okay. This was our hard fork moment. It's like, look, we're changing the nature of embassy OS. We're going down to the core and we are changing its nature. So while we're at it, we may as well put the farm in there. We may as well do all the heavy re-architecting that we need to do to make this thing scalable and extensible and useful as we go into the future and target increasingly less technical audiences, right? We needed an architecture that we knew could, could over time become as easy as Mac OS. And so we did, and it took way longer than we thought because software always takes longer than you think. But when you're putting the farm into your re-architecture, it just kind of gets out of hand. And that's what happened here. And we fought day and night to get this thing out. And our community was so patient and so understanding uh, because they saw it. I mean, if you look at our GitHub history, it is daily. I mean, we were we were cranking new software daily for a year, and this was eight engineers at Start9, and we're not bad cranking for a year. So it's a huge, massive piece of software that more than anything else provides a reliable, sound foundation for all the things we want to do in the future. So it's not about what it does now. It's about we rebuilt the foundation so that it could grow rapidly and massively going forward. So the main thing, like I said, that you'll notice is the SSD. Um, it got a total facelift. It looks different. It feels different. It's way more performant. It's way more uh, reliable. Now, we just put out 030. It's like the initial you know, version three release. We've already found a couple bugs. It's, you know, I wouldn't call it like totally stable yet. Um, it does work. It is safe to use. Will you run into a couple of bugs? Yes. We will harden it as we go forward with 031 and 032 and 033, and eventually we'll be out of beta. Right now we are still technically in beta. I do not call Embassy OS a like stable mass market product yet. It's on its way and it's getting pretty good. Um, so the upgrades, uh, let's see, what are the highlights here? So WebSockets, uh, were implemented. Uh, we implemented a whole kind of novel way of transmitting data from the client to the server, the client being your laptop, desktop, or phone, and the server being the embassy in your home. Because we're not concerned about third-party involvement, we, we decided to treat the client and the server almost as like a single connected entity across space. And so what happens is they both maintain the same state, State meaning like the facts on the ground, like the server believes that A, B, and C are true. The client, which is located potentially on the other, the other side, side of the of world, world, believes that A, you know, B, C, and D are true. And this is what would happen in a normal computing system is that they would have differing opinions of what state is. And the server is sort of the authority. It kind of comes in and says like, oh, you're out of date. You need to sync. Right. And why we still have that problem, as in, say, like you cut your Internet, if you cut your Internet off, the client and the server are going to fall out of sync. OK, so how do they get back into sync? We invented we took a page out of Bitcoin's book 
and invented what you could call, it's not at all a blockchain, but it uses the same kind of principle of state management, which is that you have transactions. You have these incremental state changes. So say something on the server changes. Some service goes from starting to started, right? It was firing up and now it's running. When that state change happens, when it goes from fire, from starting to running, it over a WebSocket, so it's instantaneous communication, sends that state update to the client. And that has a transaction ID, like call it number 100. So client says, okay, transaction number 100 just came in and it wants me to make this change. Great. But what if the client is missing transaction 99 because of some network glitch? It got 100 before it got 99. The client would actually hang on to transaction 100 and be like, give me 99. I'm missing a transaction here, right? And then it would fill in the blanks and then fast forward everything to the latest state. So your embassy, the back end and front end, maintain the synchronicity using this sort of nonced transactional approach where it can quickly get back into sync with itself um, by kind of requesting the missing pieces or just fast forwarding all together and saying, you know what? I'm so out of sync. I've been offline for so long. I'm just going to trash my state. Give me the whole new thing. And it sends the whole new thing. Okay. So the front end and the back end, in essence, act like they act like a monitor on a computer, right? The computer's in your home in Texas and the monitor is in the palm of your hand in Florida yeah. But they feel like they're connected. It feels like it's one device. And that is a huge kind of luxury of this system. It feels really nice. It, everything is very instantaneous. Um, and then a whole bunch of more boring stuff. I don't know how much you want me to get into here. Um, we put out a blog post. That's what we should do. If you're okay. interested in the, the like gritty details of all the cool stuff that we did here, check out our blog post that we posted on Medium. By the way, we will be moving our blogging uh, infrastructure to some self-hosted stuff that we're setting up soon. Medium was expedient right out of the gate, but we are moving sure. it over. But for now, we put out a tweet about it. Uh, you can find it there, and maybe we'll put the link in the notes of this show. Yeah, I'll get it into the notes. I'm, that's what I'm. Every time I'm over here typing, that's what I'm doing is adding stuff to go in our notes. Because yeah. if I don't, it won't happen. I promise you right now. Um, you, we, we've really covered a lot about the technical upgrades to the embassy. Are, is there anything else that's gone on with start nine? Like that you want to talk about here toward the end? And I, I don't know. How, I don't remember how much Lego work I did trying to put you guys together, but um, you have a pretty interesting testimonial, even though it was brief. I had Adam Curry on a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and he said, and I'm quoting here and I'm going to use the effort because it was his quote. He goes, that's one sexy fucking little box. <laughs> right, that's a pretty high, that's pretty high praise from, from Curry. Um, I thought I, I saw you. I almost intro. want to put that like on the top of our website. Yeah. Or get a shirt with Adam on it and the start no, line. That's cool. Just looking at it like that. That's hey, you cool. know what? Make yeah. a shirt with him on the screen. He stole my I monetize trolls thing. He made a t-shirt with it. So we yeah. can, we can make it Adam Curry. That's one sexy fucking little box uh, thing. But has anything gone on like just at the company level that's, that you maybe want to say something about? Well, we've grown since I was last on here. Um, you know, there are 13, you know, official contributors to the company. Um, you know, we have eight like core full-time in-house, you know, most of us are geographically uh, co-located, uh, which is rare in the modern world, especially for the kind of thing that we're building. But, you know, we work together um, and that makes us be able to, to build very, very quickly. Uh, there are huge benefits to 
being, you know, in the same location as your, as your teammates. Um, and then we have five people who, uh, you know, work remotely on a contract basis, et cetera. So there's 13 of us working on this now. It's a pretty big team. Um, everyone's worth their salt. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there hasn't been some huge changes. We closed out a fundraising round last year that was, you know, um, fairly minimal by fundraising standards, but allowed us to kind of like take the next step towards scale. Um, and, um, we are doing another one. Uh, I won't say too much about it, but, um, we are doing another raise right now. Um, in fact, it is, um, under the SEC 503B clause, which means we are actually allowed to tell people we're doing it and anyone okay. is willing to participate. It's pretty much full. I don't want to get, you know, get anybody's hopes up if they're listening, but, um, if anyone listening here wants to participate in this, um, and be a shareholder of start nine, it's not like a note. It's not some promise for future. We're actually selling stock. Um, then you should check out the, uh, angel list syndicate that is being run by one of our favored partners and largest investor in this round, which is 1031. 1031 is a firm that invests in Bitcoin only sovereignty tech only funds. They are a fantastic firm. Awesome people over there. Um, and they fired up at my request a, syndicate on angellist.com such that smaller check writers, people who weren't going to come in for a hundred K or something yeah. like that could participate through them. Right. Okay. So they're sort of like the holding company. You invest in them, they invest in us. And that way people can, uh, invest. And that's in at a more reasonable level. Is there, is there kind of like a, a bogey, like you have to hit, like somebody can't come in with five bucks, obviously. Like I don't you know. know actually what the okay. minimum on their syndicate is, but it's pretty low. Okay. Um, it's, 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 it's accessible. Now, unfortunately, because of the anachronistic bullshit SEC, um, <laughs> you, you cannot invest in us if you are not what they call an accredited investor. You must okay. be an accredited investor. Now, there are a few ways to obtain that status. One is net worth. One is, income thresholds. And another more recent one is actually a test. Like you can literally go online and take like a course and then pass a test and be a, an accredited investor. Cause you know what you're doing basically is what. Yeah. Well, like, that's their, that's their smokescreen. If you, you know, we're protecting like you. That. We're the SEC protecting yeah. you from making bad investments. But, like, but see, I like that, right? Cause I think a, a accredited investor is a $2 million net worth. You could be an idiot and have $2 million. Correct. Right. But it doesn't you, mean you understand risk. You could have won the lottery yeah. last week yeah. and you have $4 million and all of a sudden you're an accredited investor and you could piss all your money away. You can be a guy that's been busting your ass your whole life. You have a half million bucks smart, saved up. Yeah. You know what you're doing, but you can't invest 4,000 bucks or a couple thousand yeah. bucks in a company and say, Hey, this is risk capital. Yep. So I, I don't like them at all, but I, I have to say, I like that option. It was I think that's nice good for small yeah. companies that are trying to do fundraising. It was a good step in the right direction. Yeah. Cool. Um, hopefully I, they trash the accredited investor crap. I was soon. this many years old when I learned that. I, yeah. wow. It's today's, today's old, today days old when I realized the way to do an accredited investor status. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, exactly. I thought it was important that yeah. people who were smaller check writers and could get through the SEC bullshit, right? In whatever way they see fit, um, could participate in our round because 
you know, this is a product for individuals. And if individuals see value in what we're doing, then why shouldn't they get a piece of it? So if you want to own some stock, there's probably some space left. You'd have to check with 1031. I'm not directly involved yeah, I got in, that, in that raise. So that's how raises work. There's a certain amount you're selling when they're gone, they're gone. That's, that's yeah. kind of the point. Cool. Um, so what do you think your future holds? I mean, we kind of already hit on that, but I always like to throw that out toward the end. You know, what, mm-hmm. what's, what's some of the plans? I love the future question because here's the thing. I'm so enamored by it that talking about it and thinking about it on a daily basis is um, not uh, effective. Like, like we are a very focused company on like the next step. Okay, your coaches say this all the time, all the time in football. We're we're focused on the next game. We're focused on the next version of Embassy OS. But you have to know where you're going. Okay, but it's important to not focus on where you're going because then it detracts from your ability to get there. It detracts from your ability to to win the next battle. Well, here's where we're going, <laughs> okay? Because I do love talking about it every once in a while. Um, once you have this thing called sovereign computing, right? A decentralized computing infrastructure uh, for planet Earth. And here's the thing: it's super valuable. Your embassy, for instance. Even before that happens, right, you you today get personal selfish value out of owning an embassy. Not you, Jack Spurgo, because I know you haven't used it much yet. We'll get you there. But but if you are using it and running it like I am, I get personal selfish benefit out of it. And I don't care if anyone else on Earth is using an embassy. There's no network effect consideration here. It's not like social media where it's like I only want to be where everyone is, but nobody's there. So I'm not going to go. So then it never takes off. This is like you can use it yourself. However, once more and more people start using it, now you get some added benefits, right? It's like, uh, there's this, there emerges a network effect where it's like, man, I'm loving my thing, but if everyone else got one, then it would be even cooler. And here's how. So at scale, there's a few things along the way that can be leveraged, but at scale, we're talking about mesh networking. Okay. Yeah. The final, the final boss in all of the current computing models is the ISP. Ultimately, they are the gatekeepers of the Internet. You can build as much decentralized computing infrastructure and software as you want. But if your Internet can be turned off by your ISP or their masters, then it's all kind of for not. Now, are they going to turn off the Internet for you or everyone? Well, there's risk in that, right? Like turning off the Internet causes society to falter. So there is this sort of mutual destruction protection associated with this infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I saw we all saw the South Park episode. We know <laughs> what happens if you the modem, you had to unplug it. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it is it's dangerous. And and ultimately, the solution to that is to build kind of what was supposed to be the Internet out of the gate, which is a bunch of servers talking to each other on a distributed network. Um, the ISP has sort of emerged as this convenience factor uh, and by necessity of investment, because all this fiber optic cable had to be laid and yada, yada. Right. But in the future, if any given geographic region, say your neighborhood, has enough embassies running in it, um, they can start to talk to each other. You can start to rent bandwidth from one of them. So one person gets an Internet connection with their ISP and they don't use it all day, every day. And they have a you know gigabit uh, Internet connection and they don't use hardly a fraction of it. Well, you can just instead of getting your own Internet bill, just pay your neighbor 
sats, you know, Bitcoin over the Lightning Network and rent bandwidth on them on a as pay as you go basis, end up with an internet bill that amounts to $10 a month instead of 100 and get all the usage that you need. Now, that's only a step in that direction. At mm-hmm. scale, if the neighborhood next to you also has a bunch of embassies and the state next to them has a bunch of embassies and and you put a couple towers up, now nobody's renting bandwidth from the ISPs at all. Now you just actually have a decentralized distributed internet that is running off of a bunch of self-hosted sovereign servers. That is just a beautiful vision that is going to take many, many years to come true. But we actually have a viable strategy here because a lot of people that have talked about building a decentralized internet are almost always referring to software. They're almost always talking about some piece of software that if you install on your computer, then you're yeah. now on a distributed. You're not though. You're still running on centralized infrastructure. Yeah. If you want a truly decentralized internet, which I think is necessary for humanity's future, you've got to go all the way to hardware. You've got to put a device in every home, every apartment complex. Everyone has to have a server. And there's a lot of people that listen to me say that and just go, never going to happen. Never going to happen. Bullshit. Here's why it's going to happen. Every single bullshit, every single home and apartment complex already has a dedicated device for connecting to the Internet. We call it a router. The reason I'm laughing when you say that is I remember being in school in like about probably about 83 or 84. And we got one of the first computers in the school. It was a Mac and we were learning like basic code and stuff like that. And I remember telling my teacher, everybody's going to have one of those. And my teacher told me I had to be like 12. Yeah. That I was stupid. Yeah. There was no way that everybody was going to have one of these. They're too expensive. He thought it was dumb. The school even bought it because we had one computer for the whole school. You had to sign up for like a 10 minute little course and how to basically make, uh, basically you made a calculator program with like five lines of basic and it would, it would add four plus four or whatever if you stuck it in on the variables. And he thought it was just dumb and I was a stupid kid and there's no way anybody was going to, there was no purpose for every, every home to have a computer. And if I would have been like clairvoyant, could have said, not only will everybody have a computer, they'll have one this big in their pocket that will do a thousand times. Then I would have been complete. They probably would have locked me up. <laughs> yeah. You'd have been- so when you say that there's like never going to be a day that everybody has one of these little boxes and an SSD, that, that to me is actually, that's easier. Oh, that's sure. easier well, than getting to a point where I've got, I've got sitting here right three computers in front of me right now. Right. Plus a phone. Look, here's why it's even easier than easier. Okay. It's because there's already precedent for this. Yeah. Everyone has a device in their home that they already have created brain space for yeah. and understand as their gateway to the Internet. Right. It's their modem. In fact, a lot of people now have two dedicated devices. They have the modem from their ISP and then they have some privacy router or secondary router yeah. that they put downstream of that thing. Right. As opposed to using the two in one from the ISP, which you should not do. Yeah, I um, don't. <laughs> so so. Not only are are people already used to the idea of having an Internet-connected device solely dedicated to Internet connectivity in your home, but they're used to multiple of them. And now you even have things like smart speakers where it's like, okay, this is the like the brain of my home. And there's this yeah. speaker in my home and I yell, hey, Alexa, do turn on the lights. So we're already getting used to this idea very rapidly of like a dedicated device not, that not only acts as your gateway to the internet, but also acts as the governance tool of your home, as the manager of your home. We're going after both of them. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if going- you did use those smart home things and you said, uh, hey, embassy, dim the lights, and it wasn't going to Google or Amazon first. Yes. 
This is right. where I'm going with this. This yeah. is the future I don't like to talk too much about because it's too fucking beautiful. Okay. Is that we can be a router easily. That's actually on the near term roadmap. Okay. We can also be a smart speaker. Okay. You can talk to your embassy and it can be connected to other smart devices in your home, like a security camera or light bulbs, right? People, people who value their privacy and sovereignty freak out when they hear about new products that are connected to the internet. Like I don't need my light bulb to be smart and plug into the Google mothership so that they can see if my lights are on or not. Yeah. And they're right. You're right to think that because that's fucking crazy and dangerous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If Google controls the locks to your home, it ain't your home anymore. No, no. So, but but that I same know. person watched Captain Picard go computer lights and thought that was cool as shit. Cool. They just don't want Google involved in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I want the smart future. I want my home to be this super intelligent personal assistant that I just think things and it does them. And I just don't want Google involved. I just don't want a third party involved. But look, start nine is not going to go start making light bulbs. Okay. But the, the, the technology that we are building will enable smart light bulbs that don't talk to Google, right? Just yeah. like Google didn't make light bulbs. No. They built something that enabled smart light bulbs to talk to Google. We are reinventing computing here and it doesn't stop at, I want to upload photos to the internet. It extends to the physical world. We're trying to create a sovereign network of intelligent robots that serve individuals rather than corporations and governments. And so that's kind of where I stopped talking about this because I know that what we're doing enables that future. I know that it's not only us. There will be many players, a whole ecosystem, a whole industry born of this. But what we are doing is the critical first step and prerequisite to even the possibility of that future. So that's where we focus <laughs> is making sure that we lay that foundation stone so that that future is possible because the other future is not one I want to be a part of. Awesome. Let's see if we can lightning around a few questions before I let you go. Um, Chase O says, where can I get a server? Well, you can get it at startnine.com. Yep. But I'm going to say this. If you're tuning in and you're not a member of my MSB and you don't go join the MSB for the discount first, you hate money. <laughs> you, you just hate money. So don't do that. Yep. The survivalpodcast.com forward slash members. Also, somebody was saying we have a bad link in the notes. A couple of that came up and they're talking about the video notes here. It says where to get the audio version of the podcast after this live streams over. So if you're watching it live, it's not there yet. Next up instructions for getting friends and family accounts for Bitwarden file server would be really helpful. I think we kind of, that's the uncle, mm-hmm. uncle Tom, right? Like you, yeah, uncle, you, Jim. You, you, uncle Jim, uncle Bill, uncle Frank, whoever he is. So you set it up and then you set them up with access to it. With I believe TV. that, uh, you'll have to check me on this, but we have we have good documentation. Okay, it needs to be better, and it needs to be audio visual in nature because not everyone sits there and reads written tutorials. So we're we're hiring and we're we're building. So um, it'll it'll be there. I believe. Double check this with the documentation that when you fire up your Vault Warden slash Bitwarden server on Embassy, that by default we disable additional signups after the first signup, and we do that. So that random people from the internet can't just come create accounts on your server if they happen to get a hold of your address. Okay. But you can re-enable account signups just for a limited period of time while your friends and family sign up and then turn them off again 
And you do that by using your admin console. So if you go into the instructions for Vault Warden, in your you, you install it in Embassy. Every service comes with its own set of instructions. Click instructions and scroll down to the part that talks about the admin console and enabling third-party signups, and it'll tell you exactly how to do it. There's no command line involved here. Everything that you can do to configure Bitwarden to do this is done through the website, your website, your embassy website, through settings menus. And I think that's maybe important that we explain. We say website here. We're talking about it lives on your box. It's it's a cop. It starts out as a copy, and then you add to it, append to it, whatever. But you are hosting your own site that allows you to do all these things. Um, Tom says, "Would love to see Lightning Loop support." Don't know what that means, but thoughts? Yeah, yeah, it'll it'll get there. So at Start Nine, we are actively trying to, and it'll take a while, get out of the service packaging game, right? Because what we've done is we've created the operating system and the marketplace ecosystem such that basically anything you can imagine that's runnable on a commodity piece of hardware, eventually we'll get better hardware too, but currently on a Raspberry Pi for eight gigabyte variety, um, that anyone can go out there, grab Lightning Pool or any other service that you want to see, use our service packaging guide. It's in our documentation. So if you go to our documentation and you click developer docs, it gives you a step-by-step-by-step set of instructions for how to package up any service that you want to see on, on the marketplace and runnable on Embassy yourself. And then oh, wow. even we can't tell you no. Say like you yeah. go out and you package up something that you really love and we're yeah. like, we hate that thing. We literally can't stop you from making it available on your embassy and on the embassies of anyone else. Anybody else that wants to grab it and use it, can you? That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. We are that's not, we are not a, right? a, a uh, authoritarian gatekeeper of our own marketplace. Now, we have like our marketplace that we host. Yeah. But as of 030, it is now possible for anyone on earth to host a competing marketplace. Ah. So if Start9 is like, we think your thing is malware and we don't want people running it. So we're not going to list it. You just go, I disagree, and then you can go list it on your own marketplace, and then anyone on earth can just go to your marketplace instead of our marketplace and download it. Cool, cool. Can you host your own DNS to prevent sites from getting blocked that way? That way. I think what he means is so I host the Survival Podcast, and I have DNS servers, and Ah. I like somebody could – I mean, I we run kind of a back door in through Tor. Yep. We have a Tor domain. So by default – any service that is running on your embassy uh, is hosted as a Tor v3 hidden service. So it's okay. actually not utilizing DNS. Now, in the future, we know that people like Jack would l- want things on a clear net domain, like survivalpodcast.com, not yeah. blah, 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 gibberish.onion, right? Yeah. Because you want your brand in your URL so that people can memorize it and visit it. So that is part of our big story for what's coming later this year. 031032 is this idea of clearnet that we are going to be able to now run as a normal DNS lookup website thing from your embassy. However, once you do that, there's always going to be this third party involvement. You're not necessarily trusting them with like private information and but if you want to run on the clearnet, you want to run on their internet, Ultimately, your site can be censored. However, on Embassy, there's always the fallback to Tor. So say like you're you're running your website and hosting content on mywebsite.com served entirely from your embassy, but then mywebsite.com gets censored through the DNS servers. 
then you can still say, hey, everyone, this went down, but you can still find it on the dark web at this website. So yeah. it's not a perfect solution, but there isn't one. That's kind of the point is until the ISPs and the whole DNS system goes down, um, you're still in their world. What's important is to have fail safes, fallbacks, right? Um, and that we already have. We started with the fail safe. We started with the fallback. Now we're building the, you know, the, the front door as opposed to the back door. So Rick asks how about how to set up matrix so one server can support multiple people. I guess my issue there is like so is matrix an app that I just configured differently when I'm using it with my own start nine server or is it inside the start nine? Like how does that work for for Uncle Bill? Yep. Okay. So on Embassy, you have to keep in mind that everything that you install is a server side application. We call them services, and the reason we don't call them apps is because we're trying to get people to tease these two things apart. Okay. Services are things that run in the background. They are the s software that runs on the server, okay? Then you okay. have apps. These things are what run on the client devices, on your phone, on your computer. Apps talk to servers, okay? Gotcha. So to services. So when you install Matrix on Embassy, you're not installing an app. You are installing gotcha. the server side. Okay. okay, how do you use it? Right? That's, that's the big question is now that you have this thing running on a server, how do you use it? Well, it's different for each service. There are different ways to use things, and that's why we include instructions with each one. But when it comes to Matrix, you connect to it from a app called Elements. Now, Elements is only one way to talk to a, a Matrix server, but it's the best one by far. There really isn't even a viable competitor yet. But Element... And I think it's Element, not Elements. So Element has apps uh, for iOS, Android, Mac, Linux, Windows, right? It has literal native applications that you can download and right. run on your computer or cell phone. But instead of using the Element app to create an account okay. on somebody else's computer, yeah. you use the Element app and you go into the settings menu. Before okay. you even fire it up, right, before you even log in, you go into the settings menu and you change the server URL. So by default, the Element app is configured, designed to talk to the mothership, okay? okay. But they make it super easy for you to go click settings. Yeah. And where it says self-hosted server, you just put in the web address, the blah, 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 dot onion web address okay. into that server and hit save. And now... You create an account, username, okay. password. You create an account, except you're creating an account on your matrix server as opposed to the default matrix server that comes with the element app. You're swapping out the back end for your own. Gotcha. That's how it works. And then if you want friends and family to be able to create accounts on your matrix server, you do, you tell them to do the same thing. Go download the element app, click the settings button, enter this. URL, click save, and create an account, just like you would any other account, except it's on my device in my home, and you know, and now we're talking off the grid. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, next one, Miss An Mr. Anderson, can I safely export from one password LastPass to Bitwarden? Yes, there are tutorials online written by, I believe, Bitwarden team that explain how to migrate your passwords from their competitors to them, right? Oh, like, cool. Yeah. 
has cool. nothing to do with us. But no, it but it would work the same way. Again, we're just changing the back and yeah. the service provider. It basically, it takes a minute. It takes a minute to like let this kind of click, yeah. right? Is that and the best way I've ever done it is that you have to realize that every app you're running on your computer, tablet, desktop, uh, you know, laptop, whatever it is, is a remote control. The question is, what is it controlling remotely? What is the thing back there that it's controlling? Is it yours or is it somebody else's? That's how you have to think about this. You want it to be yours, ideally, and you can do that with Embassy. Same, guys. This is not really a question. We'll just acknowledge he said it. Uh, follow this episode up sometime with an expert on private cell phones available right now. I'm, I'm betting there's going to be some synergy there long, long term. Long term. Long term, but yeah. Uh, does M- Embassy have software to run a second SSD as an auto backup like Mac Time Machine? Hmm. No, uh, <laughs> not a second. Well, let me, let me rephrase this. Okay. Yes, but probably not in the way that you're immediately thinking. Okay. So in 030, we invented a new way of doing backups for your embassy. Invented was the wrong word there. We implemented a new way of doing backups. And we call them LAN shared folders. That's local area network shared folders. Okay. And what that means is that my embassy is sitting, you know, on a shelf behind me over here. And when I want to back it up, I go in there and I click backup. The backup is actually created over the air on my local area network to my laptop, desktop, wherever I want it to be created. It's using the shared folders protocol, which is Samba, SIFS. There's a few different, you know, protocols, but Embassy supports these generically such that I can create over-the-air backups encrypted. So not only are the backups themselves encrypted client-side on the Embassy before they go over the air, but the -the over-the-air traffic is also over SSL. So even somebody sniffing on your LAN couldn't see what that you were doing this. And even if they could see that you were doing it, it would still be an encrypted blob of data going over the air. So, and nobody's on your land listening to your traffic. So it's super, super secure and very, very easy to do. If you wanted to create the backup onto a second SSD, which is the original question, what you would do is you would take the SSD and plug it into your laptop, right? Your MacBook, your, your Windows machine, your Linux machine and share that with the local area network. So you actually share the second SSD, a folder on it, not the whole drive, but like a folder that's on the SSD. And now your embassy can create an over-the-air backup to a drive that's plugged into your MacBook. And then you can unplug that drive and go put it in a safe somewhere and all your data is safe and secure. That's very cool. So that just so I'm understanding that, like if I was out remote and I log in and I'm putting files from the field into my Embassy server in my office, I can then create backup with any other shared drive on that LAN. Correct. That's and sometimes free. those and sometimes those shared drives are actually direct links to the cloud, like yeah. Dropbox and Google Drive. Right? So I'm, now, I'm just laughing because I'm thinking of how much it would have costed to do something like that fifteen years ago <laughs> in the enterprise environment. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So That's, so now so yes, you can now go into your embassy website dashboard, click backup. And literally have an encrypted backup of your entire embassy land on Dropbox if you really wanted to, because it's fully encrypted. It doesn't matter, right? At that point, um, and it's also only a backup. It's an offsite backup that they they could take it down, but they can't they can't exactly. do shit with it. Correct. Yeah, you actually want it in as many places as possible, right? Yeah. In theory. So yeah. 
Uh, and, and no extra configuration required. You, you know, you have to set it up. You have to like make that initial connection. You have to share the credentials. And we, again, we yeah. have a very clear step by step guide on how to do this on Windows, on Mac, on Linux, et cetera. Now that itself is even a stepping stone towards an even more, far more sophisticated solution, which is that you shouldn't have to log into your embassy and click backup. You should yeah. just be able to set an automatic backup schedule that would automatically create these encrypted backups to remote devices. Because say, for instance, you are targeting your MacBook as the destination of the encrypted backup, but you are on the go with your MacBook. In my case, shut down, not running. It won't work, right? So what you need is a way to create encrypted backups to devices that are not on the LAN, which is coming in in the, the next release. Not only this, but you'll be able to store encrypted backups of your embassy to other people's embassies. Yeah, that's that's freaking awesome. I'm already on an automated in an automated way. And now the first implementation of this will be what we call the buddy system. It's like, yeah. hey, you and I trust each other. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you give me a certain set of credentials. I give you a certain set of credentials and our embassies are backing up to each other so that if mine ever goes down or there's a fire, then you can get me bootstrapped back up again and I never need to click back up. It's just always there. Yeah. And I could do this with like three people so that you know I, I have redundant backups. Then as a final phase of this, what I just described, you'll be able to do it with people that you don't trust or even know. So your embassy. The gorgeous gorgeous thing is you don't have to trust them. Right. You don't have to trust them. Correct. Is that in the future, your embassy will automatically create encrypted backups of itself in pieces all over the world to embassies that you don't even know where they are or who owns them. And you will pay these people. Sats yeah. on Bitcoin's Lightning Network as you s- save the data there, and then you'll ping them all day long, making sure that they have your backup, saying, prove to me that you have my entire backup. And using some advanced cryptography and things like Merkle trees and Merkle roots, you'll, they will be able to prove to you that they have your entire data set without actually sending you the whole data set, because that's like yeah. a huge amount of network yeah, yeah, traffic. Yeah. Um, and if they ever fail to prove to you that they have your data, well, you'll simply stop paying them, pull the plug yeah. and hire somebody else and start paying yeah, them. Yeah. And all of this will happen under the hood. You won't need to touch a dime. It'll add up to, you know, a few like a dollar a month, who knows. And if you yourself want to make money doing this, well, go out and buy, you know, 30 terabytes of, you know, SSD storage yeah. and advertise yourself as a service provider on this network. And people from all over the world will use your excess storage to make money, uh, passive income on a monthly basis. And initially really easy would be if you're a home worker with your own office and you travel back and forth, you could have an embassy in both places exactly. and you could be constantly mirroring back yeah. and forth and it's encrypted. And the odds of your office and your house are going to burn down at the same time are pretty low. Correct. Uh, so it's very exciting stuff. None of it is easy. I, I know I, I I talk about it and I was like, you can yeah, say yeah, it easier easy. than cool. do it. I got it's very you. hard to do. And we have a great team and we're going to do it, but it's, you know, it's going to take a, a, a while. Even, there's a bunch more. So I'm going to do two, two more real quick and, and I'm going to okay. let you go. Um, VR says, can you run an SSD raid on embassy? Is it necessary? Um, we do not, embassy does not support raid directly. However, if you have an external fully set up raid configuration and it's raid zero, embassy would essentially view that as a single drive. So you can use RAID, but it's like you're doing RAID over here, and then you plug that into Embassy, and you're like, here's my one drive. So Embassy at present can only accommodate a single external drive 
plugged into it. We are going to implement support for multiple drives. However, the Raspberry Pi just doesn't do well with multiple drives. In fact, it can't even do multiple drives. If you plug two SSDs into your Pi, yes. you're going to have a bad time. Stuff is not <laughs> going, stuff is not going to work. Another South Park reference. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, South Park, yeah, they did it all. Yeah. Um, Kayvon says, are you going to have supply chain problems for components? I guess that's something nobody can really answer, but have you had issues with all of this? Like I have roofers that can't get nails. So like, you know. <laughs> There was a Raspberry Pi shortage. <laughs> there oh, wow. is still a Raspberry Pi shortage. Luckily, we got ahead of it. We had some capital to stock up on inventory. We have a great supply chain. We have a couple partners that go right to the Raspberry Pi Foundation. So we have been able to get stocks of Raspberry Pis while most people on Earth have not. Uh, however, we don't have full access to as many as we want. So we have experienced some shortages and a little bit of delays, but uh, we're in good shape. However, the very fact that there was a Raspberry Pi shortage <laughs> kind of shook us and expedited our previous plans. We were going to do this anyway, but it expedited our plans to support alternative hardware platforms. So okay. this year, there will be more ways to run Embassy OS than just the Raspberry Pi. Okay, cool. That's cool. Yeah, more than one option. And basically, you're running you're running software. And then the hardware enables the software. So having swappable components, yep. that's redundancy, right? And you know, the thing is, you want to build things that way anyway, because there's always going to be better hardware. Yep. Like there will be better hardware available in 2023 than there is in 2022. And there will be better hardware available in 2020, unless we blow yeah. each other up or something like that. Dude, yeah. this was a very exciting interview. Um, I love hearing the forward-looking stuff. I want everybody to keep a lid on it. That doesn't like all this crazy next-gen stuff that Matt talked about. That's not coming next week, and it's not coming next month. But that's the path that we're on, and that's why we're doing this. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. You want to let people know how? To, like I've been asked like 20 times. I keep dropping in there. How do I get an embassy? Yeah, uh, startnine.com has everything you need. It's got about us. It's got our, you know, links to our products, our uh, user manual, our developer documentation. We uh, have a wonderful community. So the one thing I would encourage anyone listening today, uh, if you really want to kind of get to the to the heart of what we're doing here and experience this ethos firsthand, we have a great community of extremely helpful individuals who aren't even part of officially part of the Start 19, but we consider them part of the family, part of the team. If you come to our matrix chat, we also have a Telegram chat. The Telegram one tends to be more active because Matrix is still kind of up and coming. Um, drop in there and uh, meet the team. The team hangs out in the chat. Uh, I shouldn't say hangs out. We work our asses off in the chat <laughs> doing you. support. Um, and that's going to be the hardest thing about this company, the scale, by the way, is not the tech. It's the support. Uh, because again, we're inventing a new product category and people have questions, but we have answers. So come uh, hang out, meet the team, get the product. Um, it's cool. It's a, it's a wonderful experience when you finally start using it. It's like, yeah, it feels, it feels good. Well, dude, I really appreciate you being with us. I have a whole page of notes over here for things to be added to, uh, the video note or the audio notes and on the podcast. Those of you that are watching this now, 
we're going to get done. Matt's going to go back to work. I'm going to go eat lunch. It'll be about an hour from the time this live stream ends. It will be out on all the podcast platforms with the audio. And there's a link in the video notes down there. And if you click that link an hour from now, not five seconds from now, um, you will be able to get over there. And everything we talked about, I've got, if, if I miss something, tell me in the comments over there and I'll add it. Matt, thank you for being with us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. And guys listening to this, Jack's discount is the best discount we offer. It is the number one highest discount that we offer on embassy devices. So if you're not part of his program, get in there because there's other cool products too. Thanks for saying that. It is. It's great. I've had several people say I just paid for, like they bought the top end solution. Like I just paid for MSB for three years and I'm like, friggin' awesome. That's, that's great to have. Again, Matt, thanks for being with us today. Cool. Thanks. See ya. All right. Well, that was definitely exciting stuff. I just want to reiterate, if you want to get a Start9 server, your your MSB would be paid for in full with, I think, the lowest cost option easily for you know more than a year. If you're going to get with a SSD drive and all of that, then it's it's like a three, it would like to cover three years of MSB with a discount. So if you're not a member, and that would be at full price. So if you're not a member yet, do consider joining the member support brigade and you can help support this show, even if you're not going to get a Start9 Embassy server. I mean, that's a no-brainer, but if you're not, it's still worth joining because we get you tons of discounts. Uh, again, the discount on our sponsor today, ButcherBox alone, pays for everything. Uh, today's uh, other way you can help us out, like always, is do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And our item of the day today is the E-Tech City 4-pack of LED lanterns. Uh, this is something I've been bringing to you for a long time now, and a couple of years ago they upgraded them. I don't even mention the older version anymore. Uh, but I haven't brought these around in over a year. And I, I realized that today, and I also got a pricing alert. They're on sale for 30% off, and they're already stupid cheap. Right now you can get four of these lanterns for 20 bucks. $20.96. It's like $5.26 or something like that at $0.24 a piece. It's ridiculously cheap. Now, are they the best LED lanterns you'll ever get? No. Are the best are they the best LED lanterns you'll ever get for under $10 a piece? Absolutely. And this is what makes them great. They're cheap and they work and E-Tech City stands behind them. I have sold thousands upon thousands of these over the years. I've never had a complaint. Occasionally, somebody will get one that's DOA. You get one that's just broken when it shows up. Something happened in shipment. If you get in touch with E-Tech City, they just replace it. That's why, that's why I like E-Tech City. They take care, and I write up a whole story about that in the write-up today. But this is why I love these things, because they're so inexpensive. You can afford to have one for basically every room in your home. They have an insane battery life. They use plain old AA batteries, last for damn near ever in them. And so with a couple extra sets of batteries, you can get through the longest blackouts. And what I do in my rooms in my different part of my house, I will I put little tiny hooks up on the ceiling. There's a little bitty hook up there. And these lanterns work. by You pull them open, and they come on, and you close them, and they go off. And these ones have a dimmer setting, too. You can go much less light, much longer battery life. And then all I do is reach up and take the little handles that are on the top of it and hook it in that hook. And if you go in that room while there's a power outage and you need to turn a light on, you reach up and pull the lantern down, it comes on. When you leave, you just reach up and push it. Now, you've got to be tall enough to reach your ceilings. I have like eight-foot ceilings, and these things hang down like freaking about a foot when they're pulled all the way down, so I can reach up and do it. There's a, you can put them on a tabletop. You don't have to do that. I'm just giving you an example of one of the ways you can use them, and that when you have it up above you, one of these, even on a low setting, will light a whole room up enough to get around in it. These go in what I call your blackout kit. 
right? Not bug out kit, black out kit. We have it's it's about the size, like twice the size of a old style milk crate, like foldable bag thing my wife found. And all the stuff that we need initially to get our life going when the power goes out until I get the generator on and all that is in that kit. We keep flashlights in every windowsill. I keep a flashlight on my body. My wife not so much, but she's got her cell phone. So if the power goes out and you're somewhere in the house, you can't really see where you're going, click right to the blackout kit. We know where it is. Pull it out. Start setting up lighting. That's step one. Get some extension cords out and everything else. Get the generator going. You should have a blackout kit. The other thing you do with these, put it in the bathroom and put one in your kid's bedroom. And if the power goes out, the kid knows how it works. Instead of a crying kid, you get a kid with a lantern. A lot better. So many ways these things help, and at the price, everybody should have at least one set of them in their home. If you're looking for a gift to, sp to spread prepping, they're great for that as well. And again, at five bucks, what more can you ask for? They even have a little storage in the cap. They have a magnetic base. They're just awesome. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I appreciate you guys tuning in today. I know it was a long one. Hopefully, this one got you guys excited. I know that for some, when we do the technical shows, it's a little bit harder. This is worth putting the time and effort into. And I've talked to Matt, and basically, we're going to set up a day where I go to Start 9 School, where I work with Matt and one of his experts, and I become as fluent on this as possible so that I can help you guys have a better understanding of what it can do for you. I'm excited about it. I love listening to an entrepreneur that's that passionate about what they do. I hope you enjoyed it, too, and we will catch you tomorrow. And tomorrow we continue our series on permaculture design. They pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way 